Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're taking a little field trip. Our guest is Fiona Barnett. She's British. Finally. Once again I'm doing my bit for my fellow country people. Horror is coming home. Fiona's debut novel is called The Dark Between the Trees. And, well, it's a tough one to summarise, really. I'd say it's a sci-fi inflected folk horror that may also be psychological and a ghost story with a monster. (laughs) Yeah, just read the book, I guess. It's a very ambiguous beast, and one of the delightful aspects of the following conversation is that I'm not sure even Fiona has a 100% grip on what exactly is happening in these creepy woods of hers. And that makes for a rich conversation, a kind of collaborative exploration, I suppose, which is fitting considering what the book is about. Amongst many things, Fiona and I talk about writing female groups versus male groups, about propelling the plot in the face of paralysing weirdness, we discuss the nature of folktale and truth, and we look into the abyss of deep time. Now that all sounds very highfalutin, I know, so I will just remind you that I take every chance I get to talk about monsters. <laughs> but I promise, this week, no Bigfoot. Standard reminder, if you want more Talking Scared and to help support this show, you can sign up for Patreon and get bonus episodes, including more stuff from Fiona and a whole extra interview about haunted forests that's coming soon. You just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or click the link in the show notes. But now, off we go to a deep, dark wood. And if you see eyes looking back at you from the shadows, you should know that it's not the teddy bear's picnic. Let's talk scared. Hi Fiona and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you. It's it's actually nice to have a fellow Brit on the show. (laughs) People ask me all the time why I have so many American guests and I don't really have a valid answer apart from, I suppose, proportions of books published, maybe, horror books, maybe, I don't know. But it's always great to bring things back home for an episode. Uh, Speaking of home, whereabouts in the UK are you? Uh, I'm in Edinburgh right now. Yeah, um, I've lived here for a while, but of of course the book is set in in England where I grew up. So uh, yes, a little bit all over the place. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's start with Edinburgh. I mean, that is. I used to live in Glasgow, <laughs> and Edinburgh is is the most creepy of UK cities. I think. Oh. I always, I think it's a city in which it always seems like it's November or the Fringe, one of the two. Well, uh, yes, very much that. I think both November and the Fringe are quite rainy, uh, which yeah. is very on brand for Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, it's also pretty full of ghosts. I'm reliably informed, <laughs> which is, is fun. Have you ever done the old Reeky Ghost Tour? I have done a ghost tour. Um, it was actually run by a friend of mine, and um, I don't think he was expecting to have a friend on it or somebody who could was really interested in history and so could see through all of his lies. Um, but it was good fun. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I, I went there years ago as a student with my, my friends on like one of our, I think it was our 20th birthday party or something, and we saw this tour advertised. I think it was the old Riki. That's the famous one. Um, mm. And it, they they famously took you down into these crypts, where according to a Discovery Channel documentary, <laughs> over <laughs> over three hundred people on this tour over the years have been knocked unconscious or or attacked by something they couldn't see in the dark. Um, when I was there, nothing happened, which didn't surprise <laughs> me. That's just one of many little tidbits of haunting in edinburgh i do recommend anyone who's not been to edinburgh go there right now it is it is it is a a freaky place oh it's a lovely city it's full of little corners and alleyways and all kinds of good little weird stories um historical type things um and yeah i mean the ghost tours are great fun you know um it is good fun to go on and Mm -hmm. um i would not at all be surprised having gone down in a few of those crypts whether people feel strange presences and things it's super atmospheric 
Well, speaking of haunted and historical Britain, that mm-hmm. very much the vibe of your new novel. It's called The Dark Between the Trees. How to summarise it? It's both a ghost story and a folk horror story, but it's also something much, much weirder in its true essence. So over to you. Can you start us off by telling us what we need to know going in? Yeah, so um, it follows two groups of people, the the dark between the trees. Half of it is set uh, during the English Civil War, the British Civil Wars, um, in the middle of the 17th century. Um, and there's a group of roundhead soldiers, cavalier, not cavaliers, parliamentarian soldiers who are ambushed on the side of a hill and they go into this woods called Moresby Wood um, where they're trying to escape from that ambush um, and they very quickly get lost and have difficulty finding their way out um, and only two of them are ever seen again. And then in roughly the present day, I think it's about 2009-ish, a group of historians or a couple of historians and a lady from the Ordnance Survey go into this same wood to try and find any traces of those soldiers that disappeared. And this group of uh, researchers is run or is led by Dr. Alice Christopher, who is an academic And she has some theories about what happened to those soldiers. This is her big thing. This is her white whale, if you will. She has theories about what happened to them and she has been laughed out of the department her entire career. Um, And this is her chance to prove herself and to prove that she was right all along. So she goes into this wood and she takes these people with her. Whatever happened to those soldiers is still in there. And the modern day group don't really have much more luck. Hmm. And it's basically a case of watching the two groups relying on their wits in different ways. Yes, it is. It is. And I want to get into that juxtaposition shortly. But mm-hmm. bit of a caveat here. I have a habit on this show of crowbarring my own bits of weird esoteric fascination into conversations about other people's stories. <laughs> Oh, do it. Um, I love it. And, and, well, this week is ripe for it because the dark between the trees touches on loads of my obsessions. But, <laughs> you know, restrain yourself, Neil. Let's start quite properly with your interest because in the author note at the end, you mentioned this Venn diagram of interests that led to this book. And, and that seems a good place to begin our exploration. What, what is that Venn diagram and what are the interests? Ah, yeah. So the the Venn diagram of interests is uh, where my editor and I really saw eye to eye on this book. Um, The very first time I met him, he told me he had a degree in early modern history and another one in science fiction. Oh, what a laugh. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was perfect, really. Um, and um, I've been very lucky, actually. Rebellion has several people who are really interested in this particular bit of history. Um, they've got a contacts with the sealed knot, the reenactment group as well, which is is has been really fun, actually. I, I love that kind of more hands-on kind of history. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I grew up in the New Forest or near the New Forest down on the South Coast. Uh, so... Tramping around in woodland was a thing that I did quite a lot as a child and as a teenager. So I love that sort of thing. I love the processes of academia, I think. I I don't have a PhD, um, but I have a lot of friends who do. And I really like going down an academic rabbit hole or a... um, research-based rabbit hole. And I think there's something really interesting about the the processes there. Um, And I think situating it in a really specific location is just something that I really wanted to explore in depth. I love that idea of of place being important to a narrative. Mm -hmm. And so putting my favourite subjects of 17th century history, which I'm a very enthusiastic amateur about rather than necessarily having an academic background in it, in that place 
with people who are also nerds about it. That was just great fun for me. And what about the weird part of this? Where does that come from? (laughs) Good question. So when I got really into 17th century history, one of the things that I found most complicated and interesting and chewy is that there were various different interpretations of the same event and people coming at things from weird angles and no single definitive truth. And Mm -hmm. you couldn't really have that because a lot of these things, you were only finding out about them through other people's letters or eyewitness accounts. Um, And often those things diverge in interesting ways. And if you put them all together on top of each other, you end up with something that, if you squint, might be the truth, or it might have layers and layers and layers of about half a dozen different people's biases in it. And I find that fascinating. What if you take that and you just say, yeah, this is this is what happened, and then you run with it, you know? So a lot of the weirdness came from conflicting stories and just taking those at face value. Right, you've just said something there that has made me reevaluate what I think is actually happening in your story um and annoyingly for my listeners I can't elaborate any further without spoiling it so I'm going to have to ask you off air if I'm right about something um layering is a very very kind of key word in this book there are lots of layers of many different types of thing time geography yeah well you know what we'll get back to it let's Stick to my semblance of an order for this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you've mentioned academia already. Mm -hmm. You said you don't have your own academic background in this stuff, but you know people who do and stuff. Nonetheless, you make academia itself really crucial to the women in the contemporary part of this book because it feels like this really oppressive framework for what keeps them going. And when you juxtapose that with the historical section, with these soldiers, they have their own framework, which is, you know, military in nature. And, and they're there because of a sense of duty and things like that. That feels like a big difference. But it's another way of, in which actually there is something akin across the divide. You know, they're both pressured by something outside themselves, which is a long winded way of me asking you to talk a little bit about how you juxtapose these two groups across time, across different centuries. Ooh, I love it. Yeah, well, to begin with, I have two academics in this book. So there is Alice, who's running the expedition, um, and there is Nuria, who is Alice's PhD student, and she's just getting to the end of her PhD, <laughs> and she shouldn't really be here because she's got a lot of other work to do, but she kind of had her arm twisted into it. And um, so Nuria is here because Alice twisted her arm, and Alice is here because it's a bugbear of hers for years and years, uh, and she's she's been desperate to be here. And the rest of them are all kind of, supporting Alice they're here because Alice has sorted this entire thing out so when things start to get a little bit hairy most of that group don't really have any reasons of their own to stay in this place or to not immediately try and find the nearest exit and Alice is desperate she wants to stay in here because her entire life to this point has been centered around this one academic problem this one problem that has basically defined her entire work life and home life and she is not letting it go and everyone else gets dragged along in her wake meanwhile the soldiers are are, are completely different they have this sense of duty but it's not specifically to an individual and I guess in that sense it's more easy for them to stick together because it doesn't get broken immediately at the first sign of any trouble Mm -hmm. um there is a I guess a counterpart to Alice 
in the soldiers group, um, Captain Davies, the, the man in charge, the man with the plan, um, who doesn't have a plan at all, but he is doing his best to kind of keep his group together until they can get out of here. And I really like the contrast between Alice and Davies because she is so in it for herself and he is trying really hard to keep his group together in the direst of circumstances. They're just very different perspectives on leadership, I think. Um, I think that comes partly from the fact that they're all soldiers, you know, they're all, they've all got the same structure in the old group. Whereas in the new group, it's just Alice, you know, it's just her thing. None of the rest of them are career academics, apart from perhaps Nuria. It's all, it is all about her legitimately. And she doesn't have that kind of loyalty that Davies has in his group that she can use to kind of spur them on. So it leads to very different kinds of conflict between the two types, two different groups. I'm struggling to remember the name of Davies' second in command. Harper. Sergeant Harper. So Harper, I think, comes closest to being the, the, the most sort of, you know, default hero in the piece. Mm. He's a very loyal second in command who... You know, he, he can step up when he needs to, but he also supports Davies. And mm-hmm. and Alice in the present day doesn't really have that because Nuria is a weirdly sort of passive character, isn't she? Yeah, I like Nuria a lot. I know she winds a lot of people up, um, but I think she's great. Um, Nuria doesn't want to be here and she's doing her very best. And I love that kind of character. I think it's it's good to have one. Because, I mean, you wouldn't want to be here in the, in the situation that they find themselves. It feels like she ought to be really relatable. And yet somehow she kind of isn't. Mm-hmm. See, I've had this conversation before. A, a, a kind of recurrent guest on the show is a writer called um, V.L. Valentine, mm. who writes historical, very macabre fiction. It's really good stuff. Um, and in her first book, The Plague Letters... She, we talked at length about how her central character is almost entirely passive and how mm-hmm. that's often thought to be a bit of a no-go, you know, for, for a kind of propulsive thriller. You know, you need active characters. And we talked at length about it. And it, I think that passive characters are very, very realistic, but I think we're conditioned to reject them in fiction as readers. I think we are, whilst passive characters are really realistic to how people really are, I think when when we hit one in a book, we kind of go, well, that's not what a character's supposed to be. They're supposed to take charge and do things and and be autonomous. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I think that's why maybe she isn't as um, relatable as as she would if she was a real person. Well, it's interesting because I guess you have the so- among the soldiers, uh, Davies and Harper are they're nice. They're doing their best for people, right? Mm-hmm. And their counterparts in the modern women's group, this is entirely women, are Alice, who is objectively selfish, and Nuria, who is quite passive. And I don't think we get too many female characters who are allowed to be either quiet or bastards <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting to me because I love the fact that it's 17th century soldiers that people are able to relate to. And the ones that are closest to us in time kind of have that separation, right? You don't feel a kinship with Alice or Nuria in the same way as you might do with Harper and Davies. And I like that. I like that people might sympathize with or understand the ones that are kind of a bit more unexpected rather than the modern group that you might expect to be more relatable. Does that make sense? It does. And you've massively reassured me as well, because I'm always being hypervigilant with my own internalised misogyny. Um, and the fact that I I liked the chapters with the the soldiers, they were like what I really loved. Because I, I, I felt like I could kind of get involved in the story, where I, I felt like I was being kept at arm's length by the women in the present day. And I was worried mm-hmm. that was because I was a bloke and I was just... <laughs> 
taking the easy route. So you made me feel much better about myself. <laughs> oh, well, Alice in particular, I mean, she is a woman in her, at this point, late 40s, early 50s, who is self-absorbed, right? And she's argumentative and she picks fights. And she's not meant to be a kick-ass action hero. And I don't know many characters like that. I love her. Mm. I will fight for Alice. Not many people will, but I will because you don't get many characters like that. And I think it's really fun to write and I hope fun to read a female character over 30 who's a bit of a bastard. Mm. She reminded me a lot of some of my old lecturers and peers and in the university i know a lot of people <laughs> like alice but uh, also she does get something of a if not a happy ending at least a support like a, a a compassionate ending where she is both compassionate in herself and she kind of gets the reward that she might not want but which is the right reward for her in a way doesn't she so she goes on a journey towards something better yeah, I think so. I wanted to give Alice what she wanted. I just think she wanted the wrong thing sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I am happy for her that she got the ending that she wanted, even if I don't think necessarily Alice ended the book happy. I, I think it's fair to say. Yes, yeah, we've skirted that one nicely. <laughs> why Why did you go for an all-female crew in the contemporary section? Is it just because it was all men in the past? I mean, yes and no. I, I couldn't have had any women in the uh, Civil War section. It, it, I knew it was too small a group for their, them to have had women coming along, although, you know, there were groups of soldiers that quite often had baggage trains and, and women coming along with them in that time. But I knew this group was going to be too small and too disorganized for that. So that, so the men I was kind of painted into a corner. Um, and the women, part of it came from Alice herself, right? I knew I wanted a, a older, cantankerous female academic. And I just think that it is quite important to her that she would have had that kind of dynamic in the group that she chose mm -hmm. Alice has had some experiences with male dominated academia in the past I think it's fair to say that 17th century military history bit blokey and I just thought it was quite realistic that she would pick a group of women to come with her on something like this I think they're a really interesting and quite different group of people, but I do think that would be what she would have chosen. Well, it's cool because on one hand, it works as a kind of neat narrative conceit. You know, you've got a load of men in one century, a load of women in another century. That that just works at a kind of elevator pitch level. But I wondered if it was in any way influenced by certain inspirations that I saw in the fabric of the book. Now, I, I'm often wrong when I do this. <laughs> I'm wrong as much as I'm right, but here goes. So the, the two texts that came to mind mm. are The Descent, the horror film mm. about women who go caving. It's my favourite horror film of all time. There's an exclusively female group at the heart of that that totally changes the typical horror movie dynamic. The other text, which I'm sure must be in the background of all this in your head, is Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. Which, oh, totally. Yeah, again, about a group of women researchers who go into a very strange place and have strange things happen to them. So Annihilation, totally, definitely. Um, I love that. Um, I used to think of it as kind of the setup for a joke, you know, three men walk into a bar, five women walk into a wood. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of thing again. And I, I love that. I remember reading Annihilation and thinking, this is brilliant. Oh, I want more of this. I am far too much of a wuss, unfortunately, to have ever seen or to ever see The Descent. Um, I need to pick a time at 11 o'clock in the morning to watch it with all the lights on because I am no good at all at 
um, horror films. I find them far too stressful and, and chew my own foot off with anxiety. So less so that one, but definitely, definitely Annihilation. Um, I mean, there were some other influences that I think were pretty important to me. Um, And some things that I think people have suggested might have been influences, but weren't. So I didn't read Mythigo Wood, for example, until after I'd written the first draft of this, which is bizarre to me reading it back. Um, Another one that was quite important to me was... Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. Do you know yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, I get that. That has just occurred to me, but very much so. I, I get that. A yeah. strange kind of off-kilterness. The, it's weird almost without a name. Yeah, exactly. So Picnic at Hanging Rock is, uh, it was written in, like I want to say, the 60s, um, about uh, a girls' school in rural Australia in the year 1900, and a couple of girls at the school go missing off the side of Hanging Rock and are never heard from again or never seen. One of them turns up a couple of months later with no memory of what happened and the rest, they're just gone. And it's handled really interestingly in terms of it's not really about anything supernatural or weird or unexplained. It's about the people's responses to it. Mm-hmm. And it's very much the the interpersonal drama is the most important thing after this strange setup. And I think that really influenced how I approached The Dark Between the Trees. It's the interpersonal relationships again and how they interact with each other in the face of something just that seems unexplainable that was really important to me. Yeah, I get that. I can't believe I hadn't thought of that because I've spoken about that that book recently with somebody in relation to their own book. I can't remember which episode it was. I'll have to go and hunt it down. Um, but yeah, that's one of the the ultimate stories of, you know, the weirdness not only can't be resolved, but the unresolvability is the point of it almost. And there is exactly there's, there's something similar, this kind of Escher drawing kind of impossible geometry to your story as well, which, yeah. yeah I it's get that, that sense now. of uncanny atmosphere mm. that I just absolutely love. I think it's it's so much fun to be in the middle of. And yeah. I, I really took that and tried to run with it a bit. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I like, obviously, from that is that Joan Lindsay doesn't like easy conclusions Um, she doesn't like resolving people's anxiety and she doesn't like looking them in the eye and telling them what happened. And I love that. I think that's great. Completely. I, this is the thing I'm getting more and more comfortable with. I used to be really annoyed by books that were impossible to solve. You know, I didn't mind if they were difficult or if there were clues and it wasn't, but if they were impossible and and if that was the point of it, I used to really struggle, but reading your book, reading Emma Stonex's The Lamplighter's, books that exist on, on a weird uncanny hinterland between genres where the the lack of resolution kind of is the purpose in some way um i am getting better with it i'm starting to enjoy it more just give myself over to it but it's taken a while yeah i think it's it's irritated a lot of people and i'm not sorry um, <laughs> nor should you be <laughs> because i i think sometimes sitting with the uncertainty and being annoyed by it is part of the point, right? But also one thing that I really love is that you see the 17th century soldiers in my book trying to work out what the hell they think is going on. Mm. And their frame of references involve the devil and witches and um, all kinds of weird stuff that is, is very much of their time. And then you see the modern group And all of their things involve magnets and GPS units and things that are very much of their time. And I don't see why one of those should be closer to the truth than the other. They feel like points on a continuum. Maybe there is a definitive outcome in the end, but I don't see why just because one of them is set close to where we're reading it, that they should be the group that has the answers. Um, I really like that kind of idea that we're all wrong in the sense of in the sense that's very related to our time. Well, you've teamed me up there 
for kind of the second half of this conversation because everything I want to talk about from here on out is about that. It's about the layering of history, of story, of geography. And I think you've opened it with a little key there. So let's 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 pull on that thread to mix our metaphors. Um <laughs> right, how to start this? Okay, so Annihilation, Vandermeer's Annihilation that we mentioned, that book pokes at something similar to your book, which to me is the the idea of the natural world becoming or being rendered unnatural. There's something uniquely unnerving about that prospect. And and forests and woodland in particular hold a special place in the human imagination as a kind of uncanny sight. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that old question of if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? Mm -hmm. I think the best answer to that is, of course it does. You're not important here. (laughs) I love that. And I think there's something in Annihilation of Area X is going to do its thing, right? And you're not important here. You can be part of it. You can be completely unrelated to it. It's going to do its own thing in the end and you can't really escape it, but it's not about you. And I think the dark between the trees, this woodland is doing its own thing. You know, there's stuff in it that, is doing its own thing. There's stuff intrinsic to it and about the kind of the shape and the texture of it that is just completely unrelated to any person or group that tries to come in and work it out. It's not for them. It's not for us. And I love that sense of being very small beside something that's doing its own thing, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think... The woods are particularly good because they're doing their own thing and you don't have an understanding of the rules of what's going on here. You can't come in and say, ah, oh, yes, I know what's going on. This is this is creepy. But also you your lines of sight are much smaller, right? You can't save yourself. You can't see something big see the bigger picture if your lines of sight are so small because there's trees in the way. So not only is it not about you, but also you better have good reactions because there's stuff here and it might be five feet from you before you spot it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's something really fun about that and really disconcerting. Um, And I had a lot of fun with it. Well, it all starts, all this weirdness, with a disappearing oak tree. Mm. both sets of characters across time find this tree in their respective centuries, It's the same tree, and they go to sleep next to it. And in the morning, they wake up and this towering tree is, is gone. It's not like being dug up. It's like it's never been there in the first place. That's a very, very uncanny scene. And I've got two questions about it, okay? Mm-hmm. You can take these in whatever order you want. First of all, if that happened to you, <laughs> what would your immediate response be? <laughs> And secondly, how hard is it as a novelist to have that happen and then continue the story? Because in reality, what would happen is, I think, everyone would just sit there paralysed by the sheer irrationality and terror of the situation. But in a book, you've got to do something after that kind of rupture. So how do you do that? How do you have these characters respond realistically but also carry on well I think you would be paralyzed and the trouble with that is you're you've got to leave sometime right you're you're gonna get hungry far from anything else there is only so long that you can sit staring at this impossibility before you're gonna have to do something and I think in a book, you kind of have to speed that up a bit. You know, you can't sit and stare at it for two hours and try and dig it up because people are going to have to do something that's that's worth watching or worth reading about. But I do think, you, you know, if... Oh, dear. Try this again. <laughs> I do think that there is something interesting about 
what happens after that paralysis because that paralysis can't go on forever. You know, you can't sit staring at this until you keel over and die unless you are one particular character, apparently. Um, You have to then do something. The question is what? And what I loved about this particular oak tree is that it is really, it's a really familiar thing. You can picture it in your head and it seems so solid. And the loss of it is a really fun image, I think, of the rules changing. That is what I think is good about a lot of of the horror that I particularly like, is that sudden sense of, oh, wait, I thought I knew what the rules are, and apparently Mm -hmm. I don't. So now what am I going to do? Because I can either sit here forever until something comes and eats me, or I can rely on my wits, right? So it's a case of how that what that means to these various different groups. Yeah, because I think essentially that the heart of horror, of all horror, is the... A lot of people say it's about the reality of death. You know, people say that all horror at the end of the day is a drama of our own mortality. I'm not sure that's true. I think, perhaps it's just for me, but I think horror hinges on what you just said, which is the the loss of rules. You know, we see a ghost. Oh, my God, that's broken open everything I ever thought about the the way the universe and time worked. You know, you see a monster. Oh, my God, what else could be out there? You know, it's the minute one fracture appears in our very in our hermetically sealed reality. Anything is possible. Exactly. Yes, I think I would go a little bit further than that and say, that yes, it's about that loss of rules, definitely. And the fact that you don't know the rules means that you're insignificant in Mm. some way. Mm. So that feeling of being this not being about you, that you're insignificant to something that's going on without you, and you have to deal with it, but nobody's looking out for you. There is something really terrifying about that and really anxiety-inducing. Um, you either have a choice to deal with it or you don't. Well, w- one of the things that they have to deal with um, is this creature, the Corrigal. Mm. I-, I won't spoil what it is because I'm still not entirely sure what it is. Um, in-, in my mind, it was something between a werewolf and the predator. <laughs> but, you know, that's just me. Either way, it's deeply frightening. Can you talk a little bit? about the Corrigal and how you came up with it, because I just love monsters. I love monsters. Monsters are great. I wanted the Corrigal to feel familiar in a kind of folkloric sense, but also to be something very much of its own. It is something that turns up, I guess, for the first time that the reader comes across it, is in discussion of the deserters' narrative. So two of the soldiers got out the woods. They left a story behind of something in the mists with dark eyes like the spots you see behind your eyes when you close them. And that is, for quite a long time, the only thing you see of this creature in the woods. It's not the only thing that's going on in there, I think it's fair to say. But I do really like when the rules change that there is something tangible and potentially visible that is kind of an avatar of that. Mm -hmm. So I thought if they're going to have to be in these woods where all kinds of strange things happen, I want some emblem of that. And the corridor is essentially an emblem of all the weird stuff that's going on in the woods. And I guess you do find a bit more out about it what it is and isn't responsible for um would you say you find out how it came to be here I I don't know if you do maybe a little bit about it I have a a slight theory on that Mm. because story is so important to this book like the concept of story I'm going to finish the conversation with that point but Mm -hmm. at one point Alice is talking about the history and what she understands of these woods Mm -hmm. and and I can't remember what she says but she says something which implies that either the Corrigal is only half the truth or you could read it as the Corrigal is half story 
And from that, I took it to mean that potentially it's half story insofar as the stories we've told about it have created it, some kind of tulpa type thing almost, where the stories about it are feeding it or creating it or giving it substance. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and that is a, that big Mythico wood vibes there, right? The idea that um, the stories about something are feeding into the existence of the thing itself. I think um, there are several elements in the dark between the trees where there are stories about something or someone that bear some resemblance to the truth, mm-hmm. but are definitely not the same as the truth. Um, some elements of the stories that the 17th century group hear about what is going on in these woods are clearly based in fact a long time ago, but they've been twisted a lot. And I think that's a thing with the Corrigal as well, is that the stories about it have been twisted so much over the centuries that what you see and what you want to see and what you think you see are completely different things. I think eyewitness testimony obviously is a thing that is a bit dodgy at best, but when you've been told all of these stories about a monster in the woods and then you see something, how does that change how you view that thing? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a line in this book that I I highlighted as kind of, I I thought, a kind of governing thesis. And and the, the comment is this, quote, which came first, the dismal wildness of inaccessible places or the ghost stories? Surely in this place, they are now too intertwined to tell. And to me, that's the crux of the book and the crux of all kind of folk horror, I suppose. It's the idea that a location cannot be divorced from its history or the stories told about it. And I suppose another word for that is psychogeography. But yeah, these stories utterly define Moresby Woods, don't they? That's how everyone conceives of them in terms of story and, and to a lesser extent, history. Yeah, I mean, on some levels, I definitely think that's true. I absolutely think that's true. I do think there is another level on which the whole thing exists independently of observers. Those two things, I think, can be true at the same time. And it's kind of hard to see them together. Um, I mean, there is, I think, a character in particular who has had a lot of stories told about them throughout the history of this. And they are a real person that is on some level unrelated to those stories and doing their own thing. And the Corrigal, I think, is another one of those where on some level it is affecting the people who know the stories about it, both in the 17th century and the 21st. And presumably everyone else out there who's ever heard the stories of Moresby Wood and the creature that resides in it. But on some level also it is kind of doing its own thing. And I love the idea that those things can coexist in the same place and in the same creature. I get what you're saying about that this this environment is happening without us. I do get that entirely. Mm. Uh, And that's one of the most frightening things because we are an irrelevance these characters are being fed to this 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 beast and by the beast i don't mean the coral i mean the woods themselves that are just devouring them and don't care for them but the stories do fascinate me and in particular the way that these stories change and twist and morph over time you you mentioned you use the phrase narrative telephone um and that is true here because in the contemporary section, Nura tells these multiple st- ghost stories about the woods and there's different versions. There's witches, there's, there's monsters, there's a kind of family who did a deal with the devil. And, and, but they all have connective parts. And they're, again, they're like a Venn diagram almost, but there's no concrete telling. And then when we go back in time, normally what would happen in the book is you'd have these stories in the present and you'd go back to the historical section and you'd find out the truth of these stories. That would be the standard way that a book like this was written. But in your book, we just find that, you know, hundreds of years ago, 
the soldiers are telling equally uncertain versions of those same stories. It's endlessly mutable. Yeah, and what started that out for me was the fact that during the English Civil War, there was an awful lot of superstition about, a lot of it was religiously related, and there was an awful lot of lying in the news, basically. People would get news about what was going on in other parts of the country, and it might have angels in the sky, or it might be accurate, or it might say that somebody completely wrong won a battle. And there was no way for a lot of those people to know for a long old time what was going on in the rest of the country. And that was stressful. That was deeply stressful. You never knew when somebody was going to ride up to town and tell you something completely different from everything else that you knew. And that is really interesting to me in that kind of sense of uncertainty. So in the book, there is a family, the Moresby family that the wood is named after. Something happened to them and the soldiers have one or two versions of this. And as you say, Nuria has various other versions of, of what the story is that happened to this family. The soldiers have no choice but to take it at face value, right? Because for them, all the other news that they're getting at the same time could be exactly as wrong as anything else that they're getting. They, it could be completely supernatural and bear very little relationship to the truth. Maybe there could be a devil walking the woods. They have no idea. They have no way of telling. And three centuries later, the only change is that the modern group have even more possible versions. You know, mm -hmm. they have the Victorian's moralist view of what these what happened to the Moresby family. They have these 60s and 70s ghost story type versions of what happened to the Moresby family. All that's happened is that there are more possible answers. There's no nothing that distinguishes between what definitely was true and what wasn't. And as time goes by, it's only going to get less certain, not more. And I find that really interesting, especially these days when we expect to narrow in on the truth somehow. Often that doesn't just happen like that. And I find it interesting in a slightly different direction. So you're looking at how these stories proliferate forwards and become more and more and more um, open to interpretation. What I find interesting is looking backwards and realising that even history has history. Because this is a bit of a bugbear for me. I think from our contemporary perch, I think we have this very lazy view of history that we go, okay, I remember everything back to like, my grandfather and then there was like 200 years of the victorians and then there was and we just kind of collapse it all into it was the past you know we don't think of history having history that these soldiers in the 16th century um they're looking back from exactly the same remove to their folk tradition as we are looking back at the soldiers themselves and i just i love that that kind of exposure of how how layered and, and deep history can be. And story does that, I think. It gets that across. It's great, isn't it? Oh, it's dizzying as well, mm. you know, that there is, it's this sense of a continuum, you know, and they and we are at, just at different places on the continuum. Yeah. We're not at the end of it and they're not at the beginning. Someone told me once to put this in a perspective. I don't I actually know if it's true or not, this. So, um, but I once got told a fact that, we are as many years from the birth of Cleopatra as Cleopatra was from the building of the pyramids. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. I have no idea if that's true, but that's amazing. Yeah, if it's true, that blows open to me our understanding of what history really is. It's not just, oh, that was the past. They were dirty then. You know, it's a lot more layered and, and, and complex to end, actually, with that idea and also bringing it back to the idea that you were saying about how we are insignificant in this landscape. I want to talk about, about deep time because one of the characters at one point wonders about the Corrigal and they think, what creature from a distant past may have recognised this beast? And it gave me chills because the idea that, first of all, the Corrigal has been knocking around in these woods 
since time immemorial, you know, that fires my imagination. But it's also that sense of deep time that, you know, we're talking about a pre-human time here. Does that tickle your fancy in the same way as me? Oh, yes. I mean, one possible answer to that is what kind of megafauna is the corrigal? Yeah. But also it kind of belongs to the same realm as dragons, you know? Mm. Things from the distant past. Could it be real? Could it not be real? What relationship did it have to anything that did exist at any point? And yeah, I love that sense of deep time. So I I did a bit of a digging around in deep time theory because it's a fra- phrase I've used but didn't really know what it meant. And for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, it, it's basically deep time with a capital D and T is this concept of a time scale that's kind of vastly greater than the time scale of human lives, and it's usually used in geological terms. But I did find out that a guy called Noah Herringman has written a book about the literary history of deep time, and it's coming out in January. And he describes it as, quote, a metaphorical language used by philosophers, poets, and naturalists of the 18th and 19th centuries to explore the, explore the origins of life beyond the written word. And I would say that sums up your book, Fiona, because you've basically taken deep time as a metaphorical language to convey the capacity for weirdness in the world. It's an almost Lovecraftian scale of monsters and elder things and different rules. And it's all packed into a small woodland in Northern England that doesn't care about us. Well, when you put it like that, it sounds great. I'd read that. <laughs> but do you agree is that that kind of is, is what this book is doing? It's, it's, it's showing just the endless weirdness and, you know, not, not inhumanity, but anti-humanity of the world as it really yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically what I was hoping to do, um, have that sense of something so much bigger than any of the people or lives or stories, even individual ones in it. Um, yeah, my goodness me. Also, that book sounds great. I would, I would, um, I'd like to read that. Yeah, it's, it's called Deep Time: A Literary History. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it out if I can find the time. Um, <laughs> so, from from the very grandiose comment I just made to something a bit more parochial, um, where is this wood? Because I'm a little bit worried it might be set somewhere near where I live. <laughs> um, I am being quite vague about it, um, but I do think that a certain amount of it was maybe influenced by Alan Garner and his rural stories. So maybe it is fairly close to where you're based. Somewhere vaguely northwest up the A1M is about as close as I'm going to get. Okay, so it's more Yorkshire than Lancashire. Yeah, probably a bit more. Let's say it's in Yorkshire. Let's leave them to it. I'm on the, <laughs> I'm on the other side of the Pennine, so I'm, I'll be safe over here and I'll, I'll let the Yorkshire folk take the brunt. <laughs> yeah, don't go down to the woods today. Let's finish with my normal pair of questions, if you don't mind. Can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why? Absolutely. So the book I want to recommend is uh, Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is not really... The premise of it, you don't really expect it to be anything horrifying. It starts out with a maiden aunt in the 1920s, I guess, who decides that she doesn't want to be an addition to her brother's family anymore. She decides she's going to uh, go and live by herself in the Cotswolds and swear an oath to Satan and become a witch. And it takes an about turn about this, basically this maiden aunt living her own life and discovering what it means to be her own thing rather than an extra to other people in a rural location with devilish influences there. She <laughs> she becomes a witch. She swears an oath to the devil and she looks at all the other Satanists like they don't quite know what they're doing and she has a great time. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book and in the sense of stories about women over 30 who are doing their own thing for their own reasons, 
Lolly Willows is the best one of those that I know. I think it's great. I have never heard of that book, but that sounds wonderful. It's bizarre. You'll love it. Um, <laughs> it's um, She was a kind of a modernist writer. I think she was a, uh, yeah, it's sort of 20s, 30s-ish, contemporary to Virginia Woolf. So a lot of people look to that and think, oh, right, okay, it's that kind of story. And then you get halfway through it and you discover it's not that kind of story at all. Um, and I think it's brilliant and everyone should read it. Well, I've spent years now railing against the modernists because I it annoys me that they, they write ghost stories without ghosts. <laughs> so I am um, I'm delighted to see that some, there is some out-and-out out fantasy from that period. So nice. Have one. you heard the good news about our Lord and Saviour, Sylvia Townsend Warner? <laughs> I, I have not. And now I can go and... <laughs> I shall go and seek her out. That sounds great. Um, last question. What truly scares you, Fiona? Now, I was thinking about this, and the answer to this, I think, is the oubliette, which is a... You find it sometimes under old castles, and it is a pit with just a trapdoor in the top that opens out underground into a dungeon that people classically were dropped into and then just left on purpose to be forgotten about forever. And that sense of being close to civilization in the dark, deliberately forgotten about, is terrifying and horrible. And that sense of everyone has decided that you are not a thing anymore. You're insignificant. You don't exist anymore. But you're still there. You know, you you still have all of your faculties for a little bit longer, knowing that you're forgotten about. And there is something existentially terrifying about that. <laughs> and it's only when you asked me this, and I thought about it, that I saw the connection to something that happens towards the end of The Dark Between the Trees. So there you go. That's another couple of connections I just made between my nightmares right I've got a few things to say now because <laughs> and, you, and you're not going to like them you might like this one I think I know what you're talking about in relation to your own book but I think that thing that happens I found strangely heartwarming but perhaps that's just me um I think I found the ending of that book far less distressing than I think I was supposed to oh no I meant it to be well, not exactly upbeat, but more of that kind of comforting yeah. sense. There's a commiseration um, in it, isn't there, at the end? Yeah, absolutely. I th that I mean, that was very deliberate. I'm, mm -hmm. I want it to be that way. I think that that should definitely be there, and it would be much, much worse if it wasn't. But that interesting connection to something that is a very personal fear, but trying to make it an upbeat ending. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing to discover about oneself, I guess. Yeah. Well, here's the thing <laughs> you're not going to like. Have mm. you heard of Leap Castle? I I know of the place, but no. Right. Buckle up. Um, Leap Castle. I've mentioned this on the show before. We're in a weird kind of serendipity. I mentioned before V.L. Valentine's fiction. Mm -hmm. um, well, her second book, Beggar's Abbey, has an oubliette as a major plot point in it. Oh, my um, God. And it, it, it prompts me to tell the story I'm about to tell for the second time. So, listeners, if you've listened to both, I apologise, but it's going to be worth it this time because it's going to give Fiona chills. Yeah, Leap Castle is called the, the most haunted castle in Ireland. I, I uh... don't... Yeah, I don't know like the ins and outs of the, the history. It was owned by the old Carols. That's all I know. Um but they had famously an oubliette beneath the floor of the chapel. Mm. I think in the early 20s, workmen discovered this, this secret. They found a dungeon with a secret floor and they opened the floor and they found over 150 human remains in this oubliette. Oh, I think having remains there is even worse, you know? The that isn't even the worst of it. Amongst those human remains they found a pocket watch dated to the mid-1800s. Oh, my goodness. 
implying that the oubliette was being used until far more recently than you would expect. Oh, yeah, and also there were big, long wooden spikes on the floor that they fell onto. So You're right, that's horrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. That's me doing my bit for your nightmares. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll be thinking about that for a while. Oh, my God. Sorry, I can only apologise. Okay, well, having quite cruelly disturbed you at the end of the conversation, Fiona, I'll now let you go. I really enjoyed The Doctor in the Trees. I put it in my Guardian roundup of Halloween things to read for a good reason. I hope everyone enjoys it who reads it. And and thank you very much for talking scared. Thank you so much for having me. I'm making quite the habit of tormenting my guests, aren't I? <laughs> I keep sending Rachel Harrison pictures of gnomes and, and so do other people horribly. And if you don't know why, go listen to that episode. But now I've basically just told Fiona about the worst version of her worst fear. And I did think there was a slight tremor to her voice at the end there. <laughs> I should probably be a bit more thoughtful going forwards. But seriously, go look up the history of Leap Castle We've talked about it before on this show, but all the stories are mad as hell, including the supposed grey sheep demon that haunts the place. Yeah. Those stories, though, can't be any weirder than the dark between the trees. Fiona has written a properly slippery book, and I really enjoyed it. I'll be honest, I enjoyed it a lot more than Vandermeer's Annihilation, with which it does, as we said, have quite a lot of connection. Now, I know that's sacrilege to some, but Fiona's characters have got a real humanity and you genuinely feel their plight, especially the soldiers, because the horrible PhD supervisor, not so much. I have bad memories and lots of baggage. The Dark Between the Trees is both strange and obscure, but also highly accessible at the same time. And I'm not quite sure how she pulled that off. It's quite the trick. The book gives just enough insight into the nature of the unnatural to be satisfying, while still leaving plenty of questions. Now, there are some sections in the middle that do feel like they may be treading water a little bit. There's lots of walking and worrying about being lost. And when that's being replicated across two timelines, as the structure dictates, well, it it does feel a little repetitive at times. But the first third and the final third more than redeem it, in my opinion. Plus, it's just great to read a good bit of British folk horror because I don't get to read enough of it. I do really want to go and read Mythical Wood now by Robert Holdstock. I, I know it's not folk horror per se, but it sounds like it's fairly foundational for this kind of weird woodland fiction. I may actually try and make that one of my select books to read during the Christmas break. I'm interested though, have you read Mythical Wood and what do you think? Failing that, what's your favourite woodland horror story or, or fantasy or whatever? Or do you have a weird woodland experience of your own? Tell me. You know that I I run a lot, and I'm always up on the moors or jogging down isolated lanes, and I never, ever get spooked, even though these places look spooky as hell. Never get spooked. But there's one short stretch of woodland near me, and it's probably no more than a few acres in size, and it's called Buckden Woods. And if ever I'm running through there and the light is fading, I get a shiver up my spine, and I, I tend to look back to check nothing is following me. I don't really know what I'd do if it was, because, I mean, I'm, I'm already running. <laughs> so, yeah, woodlands hold a weird fascination. That's why I've pulled together a special treat for patrons. I interviewed George Popov, the director behind the Sideworld series of documentaries. They're these neat little docs about spooky parts of the world, and the first volume looks at the lore and legends of haunted British forests. George and I talk about that for an hour, and that interview will be live in the next few days, exclusive to Patreon. You can sign up, as I said in the intro, by clicking the link in the show notes or going to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Thanks very much to anyone who does, and I hope you like the bonus stuff. Otherwise, it's all the same as it ever was. Elon has not yet beat me into submission, and you can still find me at talkscaredpod on Twitter or Instagram or... I've even restarted my TikTok account, and you can follow me there and make it worthwhile. Or 
Failing all of that, email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. I'm back next week, but because things have gone completely crazy in my working life, I can't yet say exactly who the guest will be. Though it will be one of two people, both of whom are fabulous, and both of whom wrote fabulous books. But until then, keep your socks dry, watch where you step, and follow the river back to civilization. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>